Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study. This brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 11, 1 Kings chapters 6 and 7. We are in the middle of examining 1 Kings chapter 6 concerning the building of the first temple. Now, this chapter and the next one are just full of details, especially about the interior of the temple. And we're certainly going to look at that. Perhaps I should have titled this lesson Everything You Ever Wanted to Know About Solomon's Temple But Were Afraid to Ask. (laughs) However, we're not going to spend an inordinate, inordinate amount of time with it. First, because it can become a bit tedious, and second, because some of the wonderful artist conceptions of what these items look like can kind of cut to the chase and help us to to visualize the object or the place, but also because at times the words describing a building or an object are so cryptic that there are numerous possibilities of what those words are meant to convey. So, we're going to approach this by concentrating more upon what some of those Hebrew terms that define the various objects actually mean, as opposed to the typical English translations of them. And upon the location of the Temple Mount, in relation to the structures that exist on the Temple Mount today, we're also going to focus. So, we'll talk about Solomon's palace this week, and then next week we're going to look at the realities of what happened to Solomon's temple over the decades and and the centuries, and how it more or less chronicles the activities of the various kings of Israel and Judah up to the time of its destruction by Nebuchadnezzar. Now, in the end, we're going to see that it's the context of the temple that's that's more important than the temple itself. And the context of the temple is that while God indeed ordained a place to be divinely designated for him, to, to dwell among his people, and that clearly he ordained a basic design that somehow mimics and illustrates heavenly and spiritual principles to dwell with his people does not mean that he lives in that earthly place. Rather, he lives in heaven. Now, even more, the temple was not built for God's benefit. It was built for mankind's benefit, so very much like the Sabbath. And what's so interesting is that God doesn't ask for his people to build some some opulent edifice for him. He made it very clear to David that he was perfectly satisfied with a tent to meet in. In fact, let's read where we learn that. Turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it is going to be page... Oh, let's see. 3... 40, page 340. We're just going to read seven verses. 2 Samuel chapter 7. After the king had been 
living in his palace a while, and Adonai had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Natan the prophet, Here, I'm living in a cedar wood palace, but the ark of God is kept in a tent. And Natan said to the king, Go, do everything that's in your heart, for Adonai is with you. But that same night, the word of Adonai came to Nathan, Go, tell my servant David that this is what Adonai says. You are going to build me a house to live in? Since the day I brought the people of Israel out of Egypt until today, I I never lived in a house. Rather, I traveled in a tent and in a tabernacle. Everywhere I traveled with all the people of Israel, did I ever speak a word to any of the tribes of Israel whom I ordered to uh, shepherd my people Israel, asking, Why haven't you built me a cedar wood house? See, this is why we ended last week by focusing on the matter of the Lord interrupting the temple building process and reestablishing the proper context of the temple with Solomon. Solomon was busily concentrating on building this wonderful and expensive house for God when unexpectedly in 1 Kings 6, 11-13, God's oracle comes to Shlomo that if he will follow the Lord's regulations and obey the Torah commands, then the Lord will bring about the promise that was made to his father David. And that promise was that Jehovah would be Israel's God, they would be his people, and that David's dynasty would rule forever. You know, what a great teaching moment that was. But tragically, Solomon missed it. However, I don't want us to miss it. The point being made was that while building a place of worship and and meeting and sacrifice was needed, it was appropriate for Israel, that came in a distant second to Solomon's trust in his obedience to God. Therefore, Solomon shouldn't think that the degree of expense, the perfection of the temple that he has under construction has anything to do with God's acceptance of the people of Israel or whether his blessings for his people and the king are somehow tied to it. See, that's pagan thinking. It's not for a set-apart people. And since time immemorial, it has been that mankind in a kind of knee-jerk reaction to the influence of our evil inclinations thinks that building fabulous structures of all kinds in the name of our God is, is for the sake of pleasing that God. Jehovah makes it clear that while false gods seem to demand it, he does not. Besides, there's nothing on earth that mankind could ever conjure up in our minds or, or make with our hands that would be grand enough to properly house such a holy God anyway. So the most magnificent temple isn't really any better than a simple tent. Solomon is not making something that is going to please the Lord any better than did the original wilderness tabernacle. Now this principle is of the greatest importance for Christ's ecclesia, the church, to grasp. You know, we have always been in the habit of diverting our eyes from the Lord and onto building projects. 
We create these amazing architectural works, ornate, decked out in the best and most expensive building materials, and then we claim that our whole intent is to honor God with them. We go so far as to regularly confer holiness upon these structures if they're grand enough, if they're looked upon with reverent awe. In fact, the subconscious human thought seems to be that if we don't build the building beautifully enough, we may be displeasing the Lord, or or the building might even wind up with a lesser degree of holiness than that one down the street that's, that's bigger and better. The truth is, Jehovah is not honored one whit by these structures. It's the builders who are honored, and this from other men. It's the donors who supplied the funds that receive all the praise and recognition from other men. It's the pastor, maybe it's the priest, who presides over it all. That's who's honored and held up high by men. Now you know, although we might generally deny it, as worshippers of the God of Israel, we may even harbor a subconscious expectation that our participation in constructing or belonging to such a spectacular meeting place of worship elevates us in God's eyes. Or that maybe our prayers are better heard there than someplace else. The reality is that by all scriptural standards, God's not seeking any such thing, but men certainly are. Rather, he warns against that kind of mindset because while there's nothing inherently wrong or sinful with building a beautiful church or synagogue, it is a nearly irresistible temptation to pride and to haughtiness and to relying on the works of our hands for our righteousness. You know, a building can so easily become a substitute for a right relationship of love and trust and obedience with God. Now that said, a comfortable place for worship and meeting suitable for for the purposes of course reasonable and needed. But it's always for our benefit. It's not for God's. And we shouldn't delude ourselves otherwise. Now, generally speaking, the more modest and practical that a meeting place is, the better it reflects a, a true understanding and embracing of God's principles. Now, obviously, there are variables. And we're not expected to operate out of substandard facilities or, or you know, some place that just is overcrowded if we don't have to. However, the church and the synagogue should strive to be modest, should strive to be pragmatic in our congregational requirements when it comes to our own personal comforts. And this is so that we can be about the Lord's work of ministering to others in whatever way He's assigned us. Well, let's reread part of chapter 6 to get our bearings. First Kings chapter 6. In your complete Jewish Bible, since it's right near the end, it's going to be page ooh, 374. 374. Here we go. Starting at verse 19. In the inner part of the house he set up the sanctuary so that the ark 
for the covenant of Adonai could be placed there. The sanctuary was 35 feet long, wide and high. It was overlaid with pure gold, and in front of it he set an altar, which he covered with cedar. Now Shlomo overlaid the interior of the house with pure gold and had chains of gold placed before the sanctuary, which itself he overlaid with gold. The entire house he overlaid with gold until it was completely covered with it. He also overlaid with gold the entire altar that belonged to the sanctuary. Inside the sanctuary he made two karuvim, cherubim, of olive wood, each seventeen and a half feet high. Each of the two wings of one of the karuvim was eight and three quarters feet long, so that the distance from the end of one wing to the end of the other was seventeen and a half feet. Likewise, the wing spread of of the other cherub was seventeen and a half feet, so both cherubim were identical in shape and size. The height of the one keruv was seventeen and a half feet, likewise that of the other. He set the keruvim in the inner house. The wings of the keruvim were stretched out, so that the wing of the one touched the wall, and the wing of the other cherub touched the other wall, and their wings touched each other in the middle of the house. Now he overlaid the karovim with gold, and all around the walls of the house, both inside the sanctuary and outside of it, he carved figures of karovim, palm trees and open flowers. He overlaid the floor of the house with gold, both inside the sanctuary and outside it. And for the entrance to the sanctuary, he made doors of olive wood set within a five-sided door frame. And on the two olive wood doors he carved figures of cherubim, palm trees, open flowers. He overlaid the doors with gold, forcing the gold into the shapes of the karovim and palm trees as well. For the entrance to the temple, he also made doorposts of olive wood set within a rectangular door frame and two doors of cypress wood. The two leaves of the one door were folding as were the leaves of the other, and on them he carved cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers, overlaying them with gold fitted to the carved work. He built the inner courtyard with three rows of cut stone and a row of cedar beams. The foundation of the house of Adonai was laid in the fourth year, in the month of Zeph, in the eleventh year, in the month of Vul, which is the eighth month. All parts of the house were completely completed exactly as designed. Thus, he was seven years in building it. Well, in verse 19, the complete Jewish Bible says that the inner part of the house was set up to accommodate the Ark of the Covenant. Other Bibles usually say the oracle in the midst or some such thing. Now, the Hebrew word is debir, debir, which is related to the root word debar, which means word or speech. So, oracle is a good literal translation, but what we're seeing here is that debir has become a technical term for the Holy of Holies in these passages. And the Holy of Holies, the debir, was constructed as a perfect cube, 20 by 20 by 20 cubits, or in feet, about 35 feet long, wide, and high. Much gold was used inside this room to adorn it. Now this mention of a cedarwood altar is referring to the altar of incense that would 
It wouldn't be inside the Holy of Holies, but rather it would be located inside of the front room of the temple, the holy place. It's just that it was placed in front of the entry door into the Holy of Holies. Well, in verse 23, we see the sculpting of two creatures called karuvim in Hebrew or cherubim in English. Now let me remind you, cherubim are not angels. There are several kinds of mysterious spiritual beings listed in the scriptures. Angels are just one, with cherubim being another, and there are more. This isn't the first use of these sculptures in the instructions for the wilderness tabernacle and all of its furnishings. The lid, the caporet, or or mercy seat, for the Ark of the Covenant had two cherubim molded into it. But Solomon Solomon wanted to go one better. And so he ordered these two gigantic karuvim to be constructed and placed in the debir. Now it's interesting. It's really kind of an ominous sign that this that it is these cherubim that became the dominant feature of the room rather than the holy ark of the covenant as was originally divinely intended. You know how easy it is for us to establish something great in our life that's supposedly for God. But it often comes close to replacing God. At the least, relegates him to second place. And you know that could be anything that we hold too high. From our, our jobs, to a house, to a hobby, maybe even to our family and our children. Briefly, each cherub had a total wingspan of 10 cubits from end to end, one one half the width of the Holy of Holies. So they were placed in such a way that their wingtips touched. Thus the left wing of one cherub literally touched the room's wall, while the right wing of the other cherub touched the opposite wall, and then their inner wings also touched. So verse 29 now reverts from speaking only of the Debir, the Holy of Holies, and tells us that throughout the Bait, the house, the entire temple, there was also liberal use of carvings of cherubs in the wood paneling. Well, verse 31 now deals with the entrance into what the complete Jewish Bible calls the sanctuary. But other Bibles say shrine or or oracle. Now again, the original Hebrew comes to our rescue because the Hebrew word is debir. And now we know that this is referring to the door into the Holy of Holies. So this passage is talking about that entrance way from the holy place into the Holy of Holies. Now in the wilderness tent, this entrance was covered with a veil in Hebrew parochet. But here in Solomon's temple, there is instead an elaborate wooden door frame with olive wood doors mounted in the frame. Cherubim and palm trees are are carved into those massive doors as as they're also carved all over the interior of, of the temple. Verse 33 then speaks of the entrance into the temple building, the Hekal, Hekal, which leads directly into the 
front chamber, the, the holy place. Now, unlike the doors between the holy place and the holy of holies that were, were made out of olive wood, the main temple door was made from fir, from cedar. And on these doors were also carved cherubim, palm trees. Now, finally, this chapter finishes with describing a courtyard that was built just outside of the temple entrance. It was called the inner courtyard. Now the Mishnah says that actually there were two courtyards. The courtyard of the Kohanim, meaning the priests, and the courtyard of Israel, meaning the common people. And likely that's what's being referred to here in 1 Kings 6. The Mishnah says that there was yet another courtyard called the courtyard of the women. But it's a little further away from the temple entrance than the other two courtyards. So that's why the first courtyard was called the inner courtyard. Well, the last two verses embellishes the very first verse of this chapter. Because here we're told that it was the foundation of the temple that was laid in the month of Ziv in the fourth year of Solomon's reign. And that in the eleventh year of Solomon's reign, in the month of Vul, which corresponds to Heshvon, which is kind of the October-November time frame, the temple was completed. This means it was completed shortly after the Feast of Tabernacles. It also means that it took seven years and six months from the laying of the temple foundation to completion. But notice that the final words of this chapter are that it took seven years to build the temple. See, this is an example of the Bible using round numbers, especially when the number is a symbolic number, like seven. These numbers are rarely meant to be rigid absolutes, and we have to be careful not to consider them as such. Sometimes they are, sometimes they're not. Let's move on to chapter 7. 1 Kings chapter 7. Now we're just going to read the first 26 verses of this, of this chapter. Page 375, if you have a complete Jewish Bible. 1 Kings 7. Shlomo built a palace for himself, taking 13 years to finish it. For he built the house of the Lebanon forest, 175 feet long, 87.5 feet wide, and 52.5 feet high, on four rows of cedar posts, with cedar beams on the posts. It had a roof made of cedar and supported by beams lying on 45 posts, 15 in a row. There were three rows of window openings placed so that the, the windows on facing walls were opposite each other at all three levels and all the doors and doorways were rectangular and opposite each other at all three levels. He made the columned hall 87 and a half feet long, 52 and a half feet wide, with a columned corniced porch in front of it. He made the hall of the throne his place for dispensing justice, that is, the hall of judgment. It was covered with cedar from floor to ceiling. His own living quarters in the other courtyard, set back from the hall, were similarly designed. 
He also made a house like this hall for Pharaoh's daughter, whom Shlomo had taken as his wife. Now all these buildings were made of expensive stone blocks, cut to measure, finished by saws on the inner surfaces as well as the outer ones, and these stones were used from the foundation to the eaves and outward from the buildings all the way to the great courtyard. The foundation was of expensive stone blocks, very large ones, stones 14 to 18 feet long. Above these were costly stones cut to measure in cedar wood. The surrounding great courtyard had three rows of cut stone and a row of cedar beams like the inner courtyard of the house of Adonai and the courtyard by the hall of the house. King Shlomo sent for Hiram and brought him from Zor. He was the son of a widow from the tribe of Naphtali. His father was from Zor, a bronze worker filled with wisdom, understanding, skill for all kinds of bronze craftsmanship. He came to King Shlomo and did all of his bronze work. He made the two bronze columns, each one thirty-one and a half feet high and twenty-one feet in circumference. He made two capitals of melted bronze to set on the tops of the columns. Each capital was eight and three-quarters feet high. He also made checkerwork nets and chained wreaths, seven for the top of each capital. When he made the columns, he made two rows of pomegranates to put at the top of each column around the netting covering its capital. The capitals on the columns in the hall had shapes like lilies and were seven feet high. Now as for the capitals on the two columns, there were two hundred pomegranates in rows around each capital near the molding by the netting. He erected the columns in the hall of the temple. On the on erecting the right column, he gave it the name Yakin. On an erecting the left column, he named it Boaz. And on the tops of the columns were shapes like lilies. Thus, the work of the columns was finished. He made the cast metal C circular, seventeen and a half feet from rim to rim, eight and three quarters feet high, fifty-two and a half feet in circumference, and under its rim. 300 gourds encircled it in two rows. They were cast when the sea was cast. It rested on 12 oxen, three looking north, three looking west, three looking south, and three looking east, all with their hind quarters towards the center. The sea was set on top of them. It was a hand breadth thick. Its rim was made like the rim of a cup, like the flower of a lily, in its capacity was 11,000 gallons. Well, this chapter is about building Solomon's palace, or better, a palace complex, because it consisted of multiple buildings. It's, It's interesting that the book of Chronicles omits the recording of the construction of this palace. It's very likely located near the temple, just to the south of it, perhaps at the northernmost end of an area that today is called the Ophel. Now the Ophel is is this area just uphill, just outside the original walls of the city of David that that lay between the city of David and the Temple Mount. There, There are marvelously preserved ruins of this ancient area that one can stroll through to this day. And as a matter of fact, those that will be going with me to Israel this year, you will be visiting this. Now apparently, Solomon's father's palace wasn't sufficient 
for Solomon's growing family, is for his harem, for the number of dignitaries that he he entertained. Immediately we're told that it took him 13 years to complete his new palaces. This is intended to tell us that after the temple construction time of seven years, then Solomon's palace took an additional seven years. So it wasn't until 20 years had passed, about halfway through his reign, before Solomon uh, Solomon's temple and palace were completed. Now that doesn't mean, of course, that he had to wait until the completion of the entire complex before residing in it. No doubt he had moved in, moved in much earlier than when it was completed in its entirety. Well, in all, the palace complex consisted of four structures the first of which is described in verse 2, and it's named the House of the Forest of Lebanon. Now, there's been some controversy about this place because some scholars claim that it means that this was a summer house that Shlomo literally built far up to the north in Lebanon. But we can look for some context in other Bible passages and know that this wasn't the case at all. In fact, This section of Solomon's palace became so well known that at times it was just called Lebanon. One place in other scriptures where this mention of Lebanon as part of the palace complex occurs is in Isaiah 10. Don't turn there just yet. In Isaiah 10.34 it says, He will hack down the forest underbrush with an axe and the Lebanon in its splendor falls. Now look, without doubt, taken out of context, this sure doesn't sound like Solomon's palace, but rather a lot more like Lebanon proper. So let's read now a few verses before this one in Isaiah. Now, turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 10. Uh, We're going to start reading at verse 23 which means we need to get you to page 453 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. So we're going to read Isaiah 10, verse 23 through 34. 10, 23 through 34. Adonai Elohim Sefaot will bring about this decreed destruction throughout all the land. Therefore Adonai Elohim Sefaot says, My people living in Zion... Don't be afraid of Asher. Even when he strikes you with a stick and raises his staff against you the way it was in Egypt. For in but a little while my fury will end and my anger will have destroyed them. Adonai Zevaot will wield a whip against them as he did when striking Midian at the rock of Oreb. As his staff was over the sea he will raise it the way it was in Egypt. On that day his burden will fall from your shoulders and his yoke from your neck. The yoke will be destroyed by your prosperity. He has come to Ayat, passed through Migron. He has stored his equipment at Michmas. They have crossed the pass, then lodged at Geva. Ramah is shaking. Givat Shaul has fled. Cry, shriek, Bat Galum. Listen, Laish. Poor Anatot. Madmenah is in flight. The people of Gibim take cover. This very day he'll stop at Nob. 
He will shake his fist at the mountain of the daughters of Zion, at the hill of Jerusalem. See how Adonai Elohim Zebaot lops off the branches with terrible violence. The ones standing highest are chopped down, the loftier laid low. He'll hack down the forest underbrush with an axe, and Lebanon in its splendor falls. We are specifically told that all this action that we just read about is taking place in the land. And this land is identified as the land of Zion. And then begins this listing of of many known cities, all of them in the promised land. And it's speaking about the loftiest ones being laid low. That is the rich, the leaders, the aristocrats, the most important people. Then it speaks of the Lebanon being felled. This is of course speaking metaphorically of Solomon's palace, which was renowned the world over and it was a great point of national pride for Israel. And that palace structure called Lebanon, for short, was just amazing. Now the reason it was called the house of the forest of Lebanon is because of how it looked, how how it was constructed. It was a, a maze of cedar beams and posts. And since the cedar came from Lebanon, no doubt its name was both a euphemism and it was a kind of an honorary name that would commemorate Lebanon's contribution to the temple and to the palace. It was huge. A hundred cubits long, long, 50 wide, 30 high. It was considerably bigger than the temple. In feet, it would have been around 175 feet by 88 feet wide, or about 15,400 square feet. That compares with the temple's 3,700 square feet. So one can understand why no remnant of this structure has ever been found. It was made totally out of wood. And that in itself is just remarkable and unbelievably expensive, which is why it was such a wonder to behold, why it was so well remembered. See, stone was the usual building material of the Promised Land. It was plentiful. It was long-lasting. Wood deteriorated. And the Promised Land only had smaller trees, most of which weren't even suitable for for making load-bearing planks that weren't big enough to make substantial beams. The, the use of even a tiny amount of wood in a structure was only for the wealthy. To build an enormous building entirely from wood? That was unheard of. In verse 6 another building is described called simply the hall or the, the pillar hall. It seems to have been a kind of an antechamber. It served as an entrance to the building complex. It, it ran all along the front of the, of the Lebanon section. Now in verse 7 is the third wing of the palace complex. It's called the Hall of the Throne. And it's also known as Judgment Hall. This is where Solomon's throne was located. It was where the Sanhedrin likely eventually met, if the traditions about that are accurate. So it was where justice was dispensed. The, the walls of this hall were covered with cedar paneling, which means that it was of stone construction, stone covered with cedar. Well, verse 8 documents 
the fourth and final wing that was Solomon's personal residence and part of it was built for the Pharaoh's daughter, his most prized wife. See, men and women inhabited separate quarters in general in that era and especially so for aristocracy because they often had several wives and concubines. And ever since chapter 3, we've been hearing about Solomon's wife, Pharaoh's daughter, and all of these connections Shlomo had with Egypt. There's no doubt that a great political and economic coup for Solomon was in place here. But it was also a disaster waiting to happen because the Lord had instructed in the Torah that Israel was not to reestablish ties with Egypt after their exodus ever. Solomon had done so in spades and the Pharaoh's daughter was the linchpin and the symbol of that alliance. So we reread of the great lengths King Shlomo went to in order to honor and accommodate her. You know, there is no mention of her being seen officially as a queen, but she sure couldn't have been too far short of that status. Well, verse 9 explains that all of these buildings were made of expensive stone blocks. Now, here's another case where the word all or coal in Hebrew is not an absolute, but is meant in a general way, because this certainly doesn't include the all-wood house of the forest of Lebanon. Even so, stone blocks would have been employed would have been employed with that building for its foundation, of course. But the idea is that the stone blocks used were mammoth in size, as much as 18 feet long, meaning they were perhaps. 20 tons, maybe well more than that. And the quarried stones above them, meaning above ground and so visible, were highly finished, precisely cut. That's what made them expensive. The idea that these were some kind of super expensive stones like marble, or that it was gemstones or even semi-precious gemstones, that's, that's not the context here. No doubt, this was just the typical limestone found in abundance in Israel. It was usual that foundation stones were essentially boulders that had been minimally altered since they were going to be underneath the building, hidden from view. And that the stones used above ground, well, they fit well enough. And they were all filled with copious amounts of mortar. But this was not the case for Solomon's palace. Rather, all the stones were expertly hewn. They had a snug fit, a pleasing look. Verse 13 shifts the scene back to the temple work. Now remember, this book is not a daily journal. It's just rather a a record of details about the building of the temple and the palace. A fellow named Hiram is sent from Zor. This is not King Hiram. Rather, it's a man of Israelite heritage. This was a skilled artisan brought in to direct the crafting of the most visible and and ornate parts of the temple, and especially of things that involved metal casting and bronze. And Rashi explains that Hiram's father was from the tribe of Naphtali. 
His mother was from the tribe of Dan. It's only that he was living in the country of Zor, essentially a citizen of that nation. Now one cannot help but notice this striking parallel between the building of Solomon's temple and of the wilderness tabernacle. King Shlomo, you see, was of the tribe of Judah. And he worked together with Hiram, who had roots in the tribe of Dan. In the wilderness, the chief builder of the tabernacle wasn't Moses. Rather, it was Bezalel from the tribe of Judah, along with Aholiav from the tribe of Dan. Listen to Exodus 36.1. Bezalel and Aholiav, along with all the craftsmen who Adonai has endowed with the wisdom and skills necessary to carry out the work needed for the sanctuary, are to do exactly according to everything Adonai has ordered. And so, in parallel, in verse 14 here, it describes Hiram, the metal artisan, in exactly the same way as a bronze worker filled with wisdom, understanding, and skill for all kinds of bronze craftsmanship. And perhaps his biggest project are those two pillars that will grace the front entrance to the temple. And verse 15 explains that he's going to cast in bronze two fabulous pillars, each 18 cubits high and 12 in circumference. That's about 32 feet high and 21 feet in circumference. That means the diameter or the cross section of each pillar was just under 7 feet. Now, on top of each of these pillars sat a decorative capital that was about five cubics, cubits tall, not quite nine feet. However, in 2 Kings 25, the height of that capital is given as three cubits. Now, it's hard to know if maybe one or the other of those numbers are in error, or it's just merely a different way to measure the capital's height. Rashi says that in an ancient Midrashic work, it explains that the total height of the capitals were indeed five cubits, but since the pillars were essentially hollow bronze tubes, then two cubits of each of the capital, uh, of each capital rather, stuck down inside of that hollow pillar for stability, leaving only the upper three cubits of the capital that decorative portion is visible. That's entirely possible, but of course there's no actual way to prove it. Anyway, the capitals were ornate, they were shaped like opening flowers cast with the images of pomegranates embedded in them, but exactly where they stood is a little bit questionable, although it generally seems that they were at the porch entry into the temple. The columns were given names. The one on the right was called Yaquin and the one on the left, Boaz. Yaquin means to be established. Boaz means strength is within. Well, next is the crafting of the bronze or the, the molten sea. Now this is essentially a giant water tank that equates to the laver used with the wilderness tabernacle. And from this tank, the priests would wash their hands and their feet before performing ritual animal sacrifices. Some Christian scholars, all Gentiles of course, taught that this sea was used for bathing and, and there's some wonderful 
paintings fashion to show this off. In fact, there are paintings from centuries ago that have people sitting inside these like giant bathtubs taking, taking baths. Well, that's just far off the mark. This vessel was called the sea, the mare, because of its enormity. This was a copper, a bronze kettle made by sand casting, just like the two pillars. Probably accomplished in the desert area of Timna, known for copper mines. And by the way, this is another place for those going to Israel later on this year with me that we're going to visit. We're going to actually visit Timna and these Solomon's copper mines. Well, the Molten Sea was 10 cubits in diameter, almost 18 feet, 5 cubits, almost 9 feet high. And this giant pot rested on a dozen bronze oxen with four groups of of three oxen each, and each group was said to point to one compass direction. So, they were displayed much like during the Exodus. When the twelve tribes marched and camped together in four groups of three tribes each, each group occupying a compass direction, the oxen all faced outward, and so the sea rested on their hindquarters. Well, the weight must have been enormous, as the thickness of that cast metal pot was a full handbreadth, in other words, about four inches thick. It contained about, well, the complete Jewish Bible says 11,000, but the actual number originally given was 2,000 Roman baths, which is closer to 12,000 gallons of water, about as much as in a small to medium-sized home swimming pool. It's thought that the water was not put into it from buckets, but rather by means of a pipe. You know, plumbing wasn't unknown in this era. In fact... I happen to have personally witnessed in Israel the discovery made less than 24 hours earlier of a section of baked clay pipe down by the pool of Siloam at the bottom of the hill at the city of David. It was probably oh five inches in diameter and definitely dated from a strata of David's era, maybe even a little bit earlier. It was perfectly intact. Well, water used for this vessel was for ritual purposes. So, it had to be of the type that the scriptures call Maim Chaim, living water. Does that ring a bell? This was water that came from a moving source like a river. It couldn't come from a well or from a, from a pond. However, an artesian spring where water comes up from underground under pressure was considered Mayim Chaim, and we know that even today artesian springs operate under the Temple Mount. Ancient Hebrew documents claim that there were holes in the feet of those cast oxen that allowed for pipes to be inserted from underneath, connected to these artesian springs as a means to supply the molten sea with these large quantities of water that would be used daily. Well, let's stop here. Next week, we're going to examine some of the other objects used inside and outside of the temple walls. Then we're also going to look at the history of Solomon's temple until its destruction.